Good morning. Pastor Ben had finished up last week in the book of Hebrews, and I think when he returns to the pulpit, the plan is to go into a series of Jonah. You know, as we move from the New Testament to the Old Testament, if we review most scriptures and rightfully show, we we should. But uh, we realize that uh, if you go through a lot of a pastor's sermon notes and files, large percentage of their sermons are on the New Testament. And that's rightfully so. We should be preaching about Jesus, drawing people in to know and the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the power that he possesses. I often talk to new Christians and they start to read the Bible and I often advise them, don't start at page one. This is just one of them Bibles. The Bible is just something you don't start at page one. I always tell them, go to the Synoptic Gospels and study those first. Encourage them as they do that to learn about Jesus, who he is. And then I encourage them to move on to Acts, to learn about the new church, and learn about those first members of that church. However, though, I do emphasize that it's very important that once we do understand Jesus Christ, that we go back and we learn about the history of Christianity. And we do that by going to the Old Testament. It's been said that we need to know our history so that much of that is not repeated. It's important we know our history, but unfortunately much of the bad things in history seem to get repeated. About a month ago, Patty and I, we went out to help some dear friends of ours in western North Dakota to pack up their stuff and leave the area they had ministered in South Dakota and North Dakota for about 46 years. They are about 10 years older than we are and uh, kind of getting to the point where they're needing a little bit of help. So they're moving back to South Carolina to be near their family so that they have that assistance that they need. But while we were there, Larry preached on Hezekiah's sin, which kind of pulled me back into Second Kings, kind of look at him just a little bit closer and to look at other kings that had reigned the nation of Israel. Now, Lenny had asked me last week, he said, well, what are you going to preach on? I said, well, it's probably going to be first king or second king. Somewhere in there I'm going to be. You know, if my pastor asked me to preach something specific, definitely I will. But normally if you ever see me in the pulpit, it's normally that you're hearing a sermon that is about a book that I'm reading or a little portion of scripture perhaps that I've been studying the last week or two. So this morning we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 18. This probably should be a series, or it probably should be a connection hour class, Justin. But it's a chapter that did jump out at me, and I kind of uh, thought, well, I'm going to share it. You know, if you're a regular member here at Calvary and a regular attender, you know that I am just a little bit of a nut about numbers. Numbers in the Bible. Probably throughout history, many kings of Israel reigned for 40 years. You have to know that 40 is kind of my favorite number in the Bible. Now you look back over the last several chapters prior to chapter 18 of 2 Kings. I saw kings that had reigned for 16 years, 17 years, 20, 29, and 
obviously 40. Several did reign for 40. But I also learned that there were several young kings that came to the throne of age 25. Never caught that before as I'd been through kings before. Some were good kings. And I mentioned to Roy when we were out there uh, in the foyer a little while ago that most of them were bad kings. Second Kings gives us a look at what they did during their reigns and what was happening with the nation. Now we go back in chapter 17 of Second Kings. We see that the nation was conquered by the Assyrians and they emptied Samaria of the Hebrews and they replaced them with people from five different countries. Can you think of totally just flushing Fargo and moving in people from five different countries? That's what happened. We know that the people are carried off into exile because of their many sins and their idolatry. They are a nation of people that have spent centuries in exile and slavery as you study through the Old Testament. So this brings us to chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. That's where we're going to start. Now Mary Peterson is sitting over here. She is my resident consultant about all particular names in the Bible because I have an absolutely terrible pronunciation of people in the Bible. So the ones that I mess up today, just talk to Mary and she'll tell you the correct pronunciation of whatever that word is. As I studied through chapter 18, I kind of chuckled at myself because I can't pronounce who the king of Assyria was in this particular part of scripture. So I just pretty much called him King Alphabet all week as I was kind of looking at this message. So we look in the verse 1, there was a king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and then there was a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And at age 25, we see that Hezekiah became the king of Judah, and he reigned for 29 years. He followed his father, and as his father was probably one of the most wickedest kings that Judah had ever seen that sat on the throne. I just think about suddenly being king of millions of people at such a young age. If you study back on the history of Egypt at all, you see where a lot of young pharaohs became king as just boys. Undoubtedly a mother or an uncle or other senior official, they were really the ones that were calling the shots for the nation, but he was the pharaoh. But that wasn't true in Hezekiah's case. He took charge right away. His very name means the Lord strengthens. I think at age 25, I was a sergeant in the United States Air Force, and I was responsible for one person. By the time I was age 50, I was responsible for 2,960 people. But you know what? I still couldn't imagine the scope of being the king of such a large nation at such a young age. As a new king... He got right to work in verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 4, began to remove idols in high places, broke down the pillars of idols, and he cut down Asherah. 
he was removing idol worship, and Asherah was a cult to a very ancient goddess. That name in Hebrew, the word meant happy, meant upright, meant sacred place. The term appears 40 times in the Hebrew Bible. Ah, it's another number for me that i got to go chase down. And he broke the bronze serpent, which means a piece of metal or bronze. While wandering in the wilderness, this staff had a different use by God and by Moses. But the people had turned this now, what was a relic, into an idol. And Hezekiah knew that it had to go. Now in 2 Kings 18, it gives a brief look at the things that this young king did. But we talked a little bit in men's breakfast yesterday morning about Deuteronomy and the institution of the Passover and other feasts and other things that God requested of the people to do. And over the centuries with these evil kings, many of those things had been taken away. But it's important to remember that this young king, he repaired and he reopened the doors of the house of the Lord. He led the Levites to sanctify themselves in the house of the God and to minister there as God's servants. He restored worship in the house of the Lord and he reinstituted the Passover feast. He invited the northern tribe to join Judah in many feasts of their people that they had forsaken over the many centuries. He united the nation to God so that God would once again hear their prayers and he purged the land of idolatry. He turned a nation from an idolatry back to God. What a big challenge for such a young king. Could you imagine in our nation today if all the shrines, the monuments, the temples that have been built to cults and hate groups, roughly about a thousand now, they think, in the United States, if suddenly our leadership said, from now on, we only follow God. We follow Jesus Christ. And you know, basically that's what Hezekiah had done with his nation. As we move on in verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Verse 6 says, For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord had commanded Moses. Man, was he ever a super king. I would have just absolutely loved to have had a ringside seat to watch this mover and shaker of a young king and the changes that he made in his nation to follow God. Now let's go on in verse 7. The Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And on down in that verse, he re rebelled against the king of Assyria and he wouldn't serve him. You go back and you look a little bit, Hezekiah's father had a long alliance 
with Assyria and a long alliance with Egypt. And he paid tribute to them to kind of hold them at bay so that they would not attack and take over Judah. Now we look what this young king has just done and there's suddenly a significant political move. A move to not pay tribute to them. And to not follow them. And to not be submitted to their leadership. It is says that he also struck down the Philistines and he took back cities that they had taken from his father. On in verse 9 and 10. The Assyrians battled our young king for about three years. And they besieged Samaria and they took it. Over the centuries, the people just seem to not get it. I've mentioned to people over and over that it just amazes me to study about Israel and see over and over how they're the chosen people of God, but yet they continue to not follow Him. They had been slaves for well over 400 years, and here they are again, they're under siege for their sins against God. In verse 12 it says, they neither listened nor did they obey. On in verse 14 through 16, Hezekiah suddenly had a lack of faith and trust in God. He took the blame forward to the opposing king. He felt at that time that it was wiser to pay off the Assyrian king and become one of his subjects like his father had been before him than it was to trust God to defend the nation of Judah. They took 300 tablets of silver. They took 30 talents of gold. And I looked it up. A talent is about 66 and a half pounds. That's a lot of gold. They took all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord. They took treasures and they stripped the gold doors of the temple. Now remember, these are the doors that Hezekiah repaired and opened again early in his reign. And now he's given them up. Despite trying to strike this deal with this evil king, we see that it didn't work. That he did not depart. He did not leave their nation. Instead, he sent a large army against Jerusalem and demanded Judah unconditional surrender. Now Hezekiah also had a great temptation to create a military alliance again with Egypt. He felt it was the only nation probably that was strong enough to go up against the Assyrians if somehow he could not make a deal with the Assyrians. Probably makes military sense, but we know that it's not the right thing for the nation at that time. So the prophet Isaiah, he did everything he could under his power to discourage this young king from doing this. Do not do this. God does not want you to do this. We go on to verse 17 and 19, and it talks just about the two officials that were appointed by the Assyrian king to be the representatives for him. But on in verse 20 and 22, our young king 
was going to put his trust in Egypt. He wasn't going to put his trust in God. God wanted Judah to have no confidence in Egypt at all. That was one truth that even the Assyrian military leaders said to him in the scripture. Because they called Egypt that it was weak. It was like a broken reed and not a good place to be to put their trust. But we see in verse 21, they said, if you trust in the Pharaoh king, then you must be trusting in these gods that Hezekiah has taken down. That was definitely the wrong thing. We had just come out of idolatry. We don't want to go backwards. Satan has a way of twisting the pledge to the Assyrian king as he offered them bribes of horses and chariots to basically get Judah to quit, to give up. And on in verse 23, Rabshakan, who means field commander, or he was the chief cupbearer for the king of Syria, he offered them 2,000 horses. But they already knew that they didn't even have enough riders to put on these horses, even if they gave them to the horses. He's trying to convince them that even if I gave you the horses, you can't win. Your efforts to resist are absolutely futile. You just need to give up. That's kind of what Satan likes to do with us, isn't it? He just tries to talk us into giving up. Undoubtedly, the Assyrians had the best army of the time. So surely God was on their side, or they tried to say that he was. They had the strongest armory, true. But no, they didn't have God on their side. No, Satan would rather not fight us. He'd rather not fight us at all. He would much rather try to talk us into giving up. So what did Hezekiah do? As I said earlier, this should have been a series. And after all that babbling that goes on in the Scriptures, just look at that chapter and just go on down and get down to verse 36. And finally, Hezekiah realized that he needed to put his trust back in God. And he told his people, he commanded them, do not listen, do not answer them. And they didn't argue. So we see that the king of Assyria, he carted them off with his ruthless army, army, took them off just like a bunch of rubbish. And you notice that that's kind of what God does with any nation when people disobey. When their hearts refuse God, they lose their fire, they lose their devotion for God. Do we see that happen in our world today? Do we see it happening today in our nation? as we see our nation slip farther and farther and farther away from God. I know Friday morning, you contenders, you've been going through Revelation. And if you've been going through Revelation, you know very good and well by studying it that it's only going to get worse. It's going to get worse as our nation contends to go down that slippery slope away from God. God wanted them to trust him not other things. A king that lived about 2,800 years ago 
What do we learn from him? Put our trust in God. Not people. Don't put our trust in the world. Don't put our trust in money. Focus on him. Satan often attacks us in the same way as he did Judah. From a military move, it sounds like truth. Sounds like a good thing to do. But what he says never leads us to a firm trust in God. Satan knows the truth that Jesus died for us sinners. Matt gets up here every couple of weeks and calls me a sinner. It's true. We are sinners. But like us, Jesus is willing to forgive us and to free us. But we know that Satan's careful lies makes it look like truth. We find it sometimes easier to put our trust in things that we can see rather than put our trust in God who is unseen. A man of God like Hezekiah should have known God would save them if he trusted in him, but he chose a bad path of Satan's so-called truth to save his nation. The real enemy, Satan, uses the same approach to us today, no doubt, as he did then. It's no new trick. Some picture Satan that he's just absolutely itching for a fight. But really, he doesn't want to battle with us because if we put on the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18, he knows that there's a very strong chance that we're going to win. Unfortunately, we put on the full armor. Sometimes there's a chink. Sometimes there's an open spot in our armor. He gets to us. But he knows overall he's not going to win. Win or lose, the battle can draw us closer to God. What the Lord does in your life through the battles can be a great, great blessing to you. It can be a great testimony to others about trusting God as well. Hezekiah had temporarily forgot about that. It's often useless, if not dangerous, to try to match wits with the demonic logic. That was a word I picked up this week reading a commentary. Demonic logic. Hmm. I wasn't it. It's almost better to keep silent and trust God instead of trying to win an argument with Satan or his servants. Human nature, what do we want to do? We often want the last word when we get lured into them flights, and we should not. Don't do it. I'm one of them people that when I get steamed up, I want to engage. And I often think of the last message in Revelations. We win, Christians. We win. Why fight that demonic logic when we already know the truth? So how did then Hezekiah prosper with God? At a young age, he prospered wherever he went. God is with us. We'll prosper wherever we go as well. He patterned his life to serve God, and like us, he stumbled a few times. And we're going to stumble as well. He had confidence in God. He trusted God and recognized no matter how bleak things looked, 
He knew God was in charge and that God had a plan. He kept and guarded the law of the Lord. As for Hezekiah, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and how all of those kings down through the centuries missed it, I'll never know. But in this scripture, God's long-standing promise to David and his descendants, if they obey God, their reign would always be secure. And that's still true for us today, friends. As we've looked at Hezekiah's place in history, we need to learn that our church, that God's people, how important it is that we need to trust God, remain faithful, and follow Him in all things, no matter, no matter how bleak that it may seem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. You guided the writers so long ago to ensure history of this great king was not lost. And it's here for us to learn from. It's here for us to study and see that he had the same battles against Satan as we have today. Help us know that in this troubled world that we live to keep our trust in you. You are the truth that we need in our lives and not to follow the twisted truth that Satan and the world seems to offer us. As I said a moment ago, as one of the writers that I read this week, what they offer to us is demonic logic. Give us discernment, Lord, to know the truth that comes from you. We ask this this morning in Jesus' name.